Welcome to Trauma Talks, the official podcast of the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies. We are your hosts, Dr. Melissa Zielinski and Marley Fradley. Each month, we'll be bringing you interesting insights, fascinating research, and compelling stories from our members of ISTSS. We are here to illuminate the different facets of trauma and how people can heal from these experiences. Thank you for the introduction, Dr. Zolinski. Um, I'm Marley. We're joined today by three experts in the field of childhood and adolescent grief and bereavement, and that is our topic for the day. Um, so we're joined by Dr. Julie Kaplow, Dr. Chris Lane, and Dr. Robert Pinus. Thank you all so much for being here. Um, please go ahead and take a minute to introduce yourselves for our listeners. Uh, Dr. Pinos, you can feel free to start us off there. I had been a director of the trauma psychiatry program at UCLA and co-director of the National Center for Child Traumatic Stress uh, that's coordinated the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. And uh, I've spent much of my career addressing issues related to not only childhood trauma, but uh, to our understanding and interventions for children uh, who are grieving and mourning. Thank you. Dr. Lane, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, certainly. Um, I'm uh, Christopher Lane, uh, and I'm an associate professor of psychology and director of the Child and Adolescent Traumatic Stress Program, which is a specialty training clinic here at Nova Southeastern University, where I also direct the Trauma and Bereavement Research Lab. And I'm also a research psychologist and principal investigator of a National Child Traumatic Stress uh, Workforce Institute, which is a SAMHSA NCTSN Category 2 site. Uh, that is uh, headquartered at the UCCS Lida Hill Institute for Human Resilience. Wonderful, thank you. And then Dr. Kaplow. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Julie Kaplow. I'm a clinical psychologist and I'm the Executive Vice President of Trauma and Grief Programs and Policy at the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute. I'm also the Executive Director of the Trauma and Grief Centers, one at the Hackett Center in Houston and one at Children's Hospital New Orleans. And I'm also professor of psychiatry at Tulane University School of Medicine. And in these roles, I oversee the development, evaluation, and dissemination of trauma and grief-informed best practices. Perfect, thank you so much. And thank you all again for being here and allowing us to have this conversation today. Um, for our listeners, there are some supplemental materials that will go along with today's uh, discussion, so be sure to visit the Friday Facts Fast page on the official ISTSS website. It's listed under Public Resources. There is an infographic describing uh, multidimensional grief theory and a fact sheet aimed toward clinicians uh, on the topic of childhood and adolescent grief and bereavement. Um, so to kick off today's conversation, I thought that we could start with a very basic question for our listeners. Um, Dr. Kaplow, could you talk a little bit about what grief and bereavement are and why it's important for us to be having this discussion about childhood and adolescent grief and bereavement now? Sure. Thank you for that important question. So bereavement is defined as the experience of deprivation or loss by death whereas grief is the psychological or behavioral response that arises from bereavement. So one way to think about this is that bereavement is to trauma as grief is to PTSD. And what's interesting is that there have been many studies linking bereavement to problematic long-term mental health outcomes in youth, but far fewer have focused explicitly on grief reactions, which we know play a very important role in children's long-term functioning following a death. 
So that's much of the work that my colleagues, Chris Lane and Bob Pinus and I have been working on. Um, so the discussion of childhood and adolescent grief really comes at a critically important time, especially in the context of the pandemic. We are now up to about 290,000 US youth who've lost a parent or a caregiver due to COVID-19. We're also seeing a rise in deaths of despair, including drug overdose deaths and suicide, as well as violent deaths, all of which have had a significant impact on children, both nationally and internationally. And there are several other reasons why it's important that we focus on bereavement in childhood. The first is that it's actually the most frequently reported type of trauma among clinic referred youth across the United States. It's also the most common form of trauma worldwide and even more so now due to the pandemic. It, is, it also happens to be the most distressing form of trauma among adults and youth in the general population. So, for example, if you were to ask anyone what is the hardest thing that's ever happened to you, the vast majority of people would say it was the death of my brother, my sibling, my sister, my parent. Um, and it's also the strongest predictor of poor school outcomes above and beyond any other form of trauma. So in a study that was led by one of my former postdocs, Ben Osterhoff, we found that the sudden death of a loved one was actually the strongest predictor of poor school outcomes, including poor school grades, school truancy, lack of school connectedness, problems learning, above and beyond any other form of trauma, and that included physical abuse, sexual abuse, witnessing violence. So this also speaks to the need to help school personnel to understand the impact of bereavement on students and effectively identify those who need the most support. We also know that unaddressed maladaptive grief, which we'll talk about later, can lead to a host of problematic outcomes, including um, not just school-related issues, but relationship problems, substance abuse, police involvement, depression, and suicide risk. So identifying these youth as early as possible can help to prevent longer-term suffering. And this is where evidence-based assessment becomes so important. As we'll discuss in more detail later, not every bereaved child is in need of mental health treatment. So for example, we know that some bereaved youth will do very well with just familial support or peer support, whereas others will benefit much more from an evidence-based psychosocial treatment. And we've learned that a one-size-fits-all approach to grief support is not effective. So ensuring the right type of support at the right time is really critical. Well, wow, thank you so much for explaining that, Dr. Kaplow. So it's it's also my understanding that there is a really long history around studying and understanding grief reactions in children and adolescents. Uh, Dr. Pinus, could you describe how this field has evolved over time and what you see as the critical directions in the field now? Let me build on, on Dr. Kaplow's introduction that way. Our current understanding of childhood bereavement and multidimensional grief theory has been an outgrowth of an extended history of interest and studies of childhood grief and mourning. They've contributed to a modernization of assessment and intervention for bereaved children, as we're going to be discussing in this podcast. But from the beginning, the child literature adopted a developmental framework. Because of the continued dependency of children and adolescents, there's always been an emphasis on the processes underlying adaptation and maladaptation within the family, peer relationships, and school context, rather than simply a demarcation of normal and pathological grief. The earliest focus was on understanding how development governed the emerging concept of death. But however, the discussion turned to other issues. For example, 
the need to confirm to even a young child the physical reality of an individual death is important to children's expression of grief and the value of attending a funeral with proper support in promoting adaptive mourning. Pioneers in the field like the Furmans discovered that privately held distressing concerns over the circumstances often were responsive for children's bereavement difficulties. And Spencer Eth and I described the special challenges when a death occurred under traumatic circumstances, for example, homicide and suicide, especially when witnessed. Children seem to need to reconstitute a physically intact image of a mutilated parent to assist their mourning. Bobby discussed how surviving adults can impose, quote, a conspiracy of silence, causing children to feel that they to feel what they aren't supposed to feel and know what they're not supposed to know with troubling developmental consequences. Anticipating what modern neuroscientists would later demonstrate, when children are able to label their emotions, they do better. Studies began to map the many ways adults play a critical role in augmenting children's regulation of grief-related emotions, for example, in facilitating mutual reminiscing. And again, developmental plays, development plays a role with adolescents contending with rage over the unfairness or revenge after a violent death. Childhood bereavement studies also gave developmental nuance to concepts like separation distress that are used non-developmentally in adult literature as the internal and practical needs of children and adolescents undergo continued revision. For example, among infants and preschoolers, the initial focus on the pervasive fear of abandonment was supplemented by an understanding of the disorganizing effect on body rhythms and interactions over daily care. And then fantasies of reunion can be very concrete in young children wanting to get a ladder from the garage and climb to heaven. And among adolescents can be embedded in suicidal ideation, something that we're addressing right now in the aftermath of uh, so many COVID deaths. Missing takes on new developmental meaning too. For example, in an adolescent's distress over having her mother not there to guide her through her first menstruation. And the adolescent literature is replete with a bivalent pull to never leave home or prematurely move toward independent life. The adult literature emphasized what Horowitz called re-schematization, response to empty situations. But children are found to face an additional challenge of retaining an inner construction of the parent by negotiating that internal relationship over time and all the more problematic when there's been interfamilial violence. And children face difficult identity and existential issues. For example, fearing that they may share the same fate as a parent or the death generating pessimistic expectations about the future or initiating a negative self-concept. The late 80s and 90s resulted in studies that demonstrated that by school age years, children experience and could report the full range and course of grief reactions that have been reported in the adult literature. For example, the pioneering work of, um, of uh, the Harvard bereavement study in the classic first year of bereavement. However, children are often left on their own, became confused, frightened, and distressed by their own grief reactions. That spearheaded efforts to become better at assessing grief reactions in children to guide our interventions and improve parental and caregiver support. In all of these more systematic studies, there's always been a subset of children that continue to experience the stress and functional impairments, pointing to the need for a, um, a, a 
prolonged grief disorder diagnosis that also included children and adolescents. It really was from child studies, like our study of a sniper attack in the playground that established the critical interplay of traumatic stress and grief reactions, the challenge to a child's inner resources to contend with both. It dictated the need for an independent evaluation of PTSD and grief, which DSM-5-TR has only recently caught up with. Looking over the course of development and the continued challenge to grief, mourning, and bereavement, the child literature has continually identified the need to map out the ecology of loss reminders and address their role in rekindling grief and developmental disturbances. And the child bereavement studies have also included special attention to the cascade of changes in a child's life brought about by a death and the need to address them systematically. All along the decades, prospective and retrospective populations and sociological studies like Dr. Kaplan mentioned, have kept underscoring the functional impairment that can accompany child bereavement, increased risk of lower educational achievement, delayed or failed marriages, and an early study by Mike Rudder, even excessive rates of psychiatric hospitalizations. There have been continued warnings in the child literature to take care not to mislabel bereaving children and adolescents as deviant, for example, because of their aggressive grief-related behaviors, something that we've come to appreciate more fully in our multidimensional grief work with adolescents and juvenile justice residential settings. And Dr. Lane is going to more fully describe this model. Yeah, thank you so much for going into detail and explaining that, Dr. Pinos. Um, I know for me, especially, those examples really help uh, to elaborate on the context around some of these facets of grief. Um, and yeah, that does kind of bring us to our, our next part here. Dr. Lane, did you want to describe kind of how this flows into, you know, multidimensional grief theory? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Um, I think one of the first things that I'd like to, to uh, get across here, um, Bob and I actually go a long way back. He was actually a member of my dissertation committee, um, and he was the one who helped me to turn uh, this from a, a basic study of dose-response relation between community violence exposure and PTSD symptomatology to, to something that really helped to, to focus something on the, on the clinical richness of the problem when he said, you can treat these kids. And that then segued into a postdoctoral fellowship over in Bosnia. What I'd like to underscore is that multidimensionality is something that has emerged as kind of an organic uh, evolutionary process in the development of this theory. And it started very, very early, um, including uh, in work with community violence exposed adolescents, but also uh, in especially with youth who are exposed to, to war. Um, and the idea is that I first had, uh, you know, with, with Bob, we developed a measure of grief reactions. Um, and I was expecting it when I factor analyzed it to turn it into a single factor. But interestingly enough, it gave me two factors. And one looked, if you will, more, more maladaptive, more struggling than the other. And when I factor analyzed it, it turned out that way uh, and replicated across multiple years. And also the maladaptive grief reactions correlated, as you would hypothesize, with virtually every other index, PTSD symptoms and depression symptoms and lower self-efficacy, lower school uh, performance, et cetera, school-related behavioral problems. Um, it, it correlated positively and, and differentially more strongly than the, if you will, normal grief reactions. And that was the very first uh, point of distinction that we made in developing the theory, that there are actually different dimensions of grief and that these are distinctions that make a difference um, at a number of different levels. 
namely that maladaptive can be characterized um, both respect to causal precursors, causal consequences, moderators, and correlates. And I'll go through that in just a moment. Um, the argument with, with a multidimensional formulation is that these are distinctions that make a difference because they help us to understand things like the etiology or the causal origin of grief. And that is that uh, circumstance-related distress as a grief reaction is more common in, in youth who are exposed to violent or traumatic or deeply tragic deaths, things that are preventable, for instance, or that involve homicide or suicide or accidental death. Whereas separation distress and existential identity distress, two other dimensions of multidimensional grief theory, actually emerge uh, as a function of, of closeness to the deceased, for example, and a disruption in meaning-making systems. And they actually are not strongly related to the particular manner of death. So with respect to the original etiology of the conditions, simply knowing how a, a loved one died, for instance, can shed light on the relative risk of developing different types of, of grief reactions. Things also like key mediators, trauma reminders, for example, are more characteristics of people uh, who've been uh, bereaved under traumatic circumstances. They're, they're disturbed by reminders of how the person died. Whereas loss reminders, things like the person's name, for instance, or uh, their belongings, places that you uh, used to, to be together or places they used to, to inhabit, are quite common among kids who are bereaved even under peaceful and uh, natural circumstances. And then with respect to treatment, these are particularly important. Um, we would argue that a multidimensional formulation is especially important because it helps you to be able to conceptualize cases more richly and to be able to individually tailor intervention as a function of which particular grief dimensions are elevated. So particularly with separation distress, for instance, we focus on finding ways to form comforting connections to the person who has died. With elevation to existential or identity-related distress, we're looking at helping to uh, revisit meaning-making systems, for example, and find a sense of purpose and meaning in one's current life to, to uh, develop a sense of uh, futurity and hope uh, for a better future, um, as well as uh, in cases where there's been uh, a disturbance in personal identity, helping people to really figure out who they are now after having physically lost their loved one. And then also with respect to moderators, things like, for instance, age, or gender or culture or circumstances of the death, all of these can play, I think, a very important role in determining who may be at relative risk for this in terms of vulnerability factors. But it also helps us to understand, for example, things like positive parenting practices, things that uh, Dr. Caplow has, has uh, helped to, to uh, champion in this work, um, help us to really figure out what protective factors may interact with different grief reactions in ways that help us to be able to mitigate and buffer that and help them to restore uh, more adaptive functioning. And last, with respect to causal consequences, one of the ways in which we know that maladaptive grief reactions are actually more clinically serious uh, and deserve more clinically uh, clinical attention is because they themselves are differentially more potent in predicting a variety of different types of problems, developmental dis disruption, for example, or risky behavior such as suicide ideation. Um, some of the studies that we've reviewed in a recent chapter uh, identify uh, disruptions actually in educational attainment that extend through every single year of school all the way through college and afterwards. Uh, so bereavement itself uh, is a significant marker of difficulties even extending into the future. And so once again, revisiting what was said earlier, a timely re uh, remediation of, of difficult brief reactions that helps it to restore normal developmental progression is, I think, really a, a vital reason why it be advocated for 
uh, a bereavement uh, disorder in the very first place. And it's one of the reasons why we feel like this work is so important. Great, thank you so much. Um, Dr. Lane, I know that right now you're also doing some work with your research lab on assessment and intervention of grief uh, reactions. Could you be able to talk a little bit about that work and then maybe go into how the research is being translated to practice? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Um, as, as a director of, a, of a, an NCTSN grant that's really focused on disseminating the core curriculum broadly, but yes, but especially tailoring it for psychology and for child psychiatry is one of our primary foci is is a is a major thrust and it's something that i think has long been needed in particular what we're doing is we're really trying to uh, incorporate to integrate bereavement um, into our case studies for example and really build in bereavement related competencies in the work that we do so we're we're essentially teaching people developing materials that help us to be able to teach people how to select good tests on the, the basis of their intended applications. Is it risk screening? Is it diagnosis? Is it case conceptualization? Is it treatment planning? Is it monitoring treatment progress? Is it assessing treatment outcome, et cetera? All of those are different types of applications of a test. And so learning how to select a good test and to formulate a good test battery as a result of, or as a function of the intended application of the test is a really important thrust of our work currently but also helping people to be able to disentangle, to differentiate between grief reactions and sort of its co-occurring cousins, things like depression, for instance, and PTSD is another really vital part of our work. Um, and so we, we uh, are developing materials, for instance, focusing on diagnostic overshadowing, and that is the tendency to see something like, you know, depression, for instance, or PTSD instead of grief or ADHD or ADD, for instance, instead of grief reactions, and to be able to really understand that it's in the taking of a careful history and also in a careful assessment and a differential diagnosis that you oftentimes are able to see uh, grief reactions more clearly. And one last point is a fundamental proposition of multidimensional grief theory is that grief is an inherently adaptive process that facilitates adjustment to a, a world in which the loved one is physically absent. So that is the starting premise of, of our work here, which basically means that every bereaved child you see, you have, you know, the uh, the the diagnostic, if you will, the the assessment related task of being able to differentiate between more adaptive grief reactions, things that we think are facilitating uh, positive adjustment. Uh, to to the loss itself and to the developmental challenges that that ensue uh, versus grief reactions that we think are actually fall within what we consider the clinical range. And that is that they're severe and they're persisting. They lead to functional impairment. They increase the risk for risky behavior and they can lead to developmental disruptions. And so uh, being able to differentiate and unpack different types of grief reactions, we think is another really important part of this work. So the, 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 the take home message for why we think a multidimensional reformulation is so important is that these are distinctions that make a difference in terms of clinical practice, in terms of even how you talk to clients, for instance, and normalize different types of grief reactions, and that those distinctions lead to different types of clinical decisions that can carry far-reaching implications into uh, the types of services you provide. Do you triage them, for example, to a supportive intervention? Do you triage them to a more clinical therapeutic intervention, for instance, and which particular uh, dimensions of grief do you choose to work on as a function of which particular um, subscales on our grief measures are elevated. 
So individually tailoring treatment, I would argue, is another really important reason why we think a multidimensional formulation is so helpful for us. Thank you for that really helpful and comprehensive um, explanation, Dr. Lane, and um, to all of our panelists so far. I think it's just striking to me um, how much the uh, research and where the research is at really has intentionally kind of intersected with what needs to happen um, in our clinical spaces. And, and that's kind of, uh, I think, a good segue into um, Dr. Kaplow, you know, I know in your center you've been working to develop interventions and assessments for addressing grief and bereavement, uh, grief and bereavement in children and adolescents. Um, I would just love if you could tell us a little bit about what you're seeing from a clinical perspective, um, perhaps touching a little bit on how you see grief manifest in children of different ages as a part of that. Absolutely. So we um, treat children and adolescents who've been exposed to traumas and losses throughout Texas and Louisiana. And throughout both of those states, we have seen a wide range of grief reactions, but some bereavement related challenges that we've encountered have been unique to the pandemic, which I thought I would talk about just for a minute. So for example, we've been treating many children who have lost loved ones to COVID-19, and many of them were unable to receive the necessary social support that they would have normally received after a death, especially at the funeral or the days and weeks following due to social distancing. And we know that that is such a critically important time for children to receive that support. Others were unable to say goodbye to their loved one because they weren't allowed to have visitors or go into the hospital, which can make it even harder for children to accept the reality of the death, which Bob touched on earlier. We also are seeing more guilt and remorse and a perceived sense of burdensomeness among children who somehow feel responsible for transmitting COVID to their loved one who died. So for example, we were working with a nine-year-old girl who was exposed to COVID at school. She was relatively asymptomatic, came home, transmitted it to her mother, who then died three weeks later. And the little girl told our clinician, I killed my mommy which was truly heartbreaking to hear. So much of the work that we're continuing to do with her is helping her understand that her mother's death was not her fault. But there continues to be so much judgment and shaming and stigma surrounding COVID-related deaths that these kids are encountering. We've had other bereaved children report that they are being bullied in school um, with kids asking them things like, why wasn't your dad vaccinated? Or invalidating comments like COVID isn't real. So this creates a situation in which children feel silenced in their grief, which we know can lead to much more severe and debilitating mental health issues, including suicidal ideation. In some of our more under-resourced communities, we're also seeing very high levels of violent deaths leading to com the complex interplay between post-traumatic stress and grief. For many youth who've been exposed to community violence their entire lives and have watched so many of their loved ones die, they often have difficulty believing in their own future, as, as Chris mentioned earlier. So for example, one teenager said, what's the point in doing well in school? I'm not going to live long enough to graduate. We've also seen many bereaved teens engage in unhealthy or even violent behaviors, often as a means of feeling connected to their loved one who died, if those were the same activities that they used to engage in together. So much of our work is helping those youth to find healthy ways of connecting with the person who died, as opposed to engaging in those more unhelpful or even violent or criminal activities. 
We also see developmental differences in the way that grief manifests in children versus adolescents. So as one example, through the lens of multidimensional grief theory, we tend to find that separation distress is more prominent in younger children, so those kids under the age of 12, whereas existential or identity distress tends to be more common in adolescents, which makes sense if you think about the developmental tasks of those age groups. And the specific symptoms themselves also vary according to the child's age. For example, separation distress in a preschooler can take the form of searching for the deceased, looking for them in the places where they last saw them, or literally waiting by the front door for them to come home. Whereas separation distress in a 10-year-old can take the form of not wanting to separate from the surviving caregiver for fear that something will happen to them as well, or not wanting to make new friends because they don't want to risk experiencing the pain of losing someone close to them again. With circumstance-related distress, very young children will tend to play out the circumstances of the death in different ways, usually through toys or through games, whereas older youth may become very preoccupied with the specific circumstances to the point that they want to know exactly what their person went through or experienced at the time of their death. So one example of this is we treated a, a teenager whose mother was stabbed to death, and in the weeks following the death, she began cutting herself and taking photos of the cuts, not so much in an attempt to numb her emotional pain, which is something we often see, but to truly understand the pain that her mother might have felt at the time of the death. So we'll talk more later about the treatments that we're using, but our interventions are really designed to address not only the developmental differences we see in children's grief reactions, but also the distinct dimensions of grief that Chris mentioned. So in other words, the way we go about supporting youth who are grappling with separation distress is very different than the way we go about supporting youth grappling primarily with circumstance-related distress. Let, let me add something, because we're discussing about COVID deaths. Uh, this is a major public health issue in the United States. It's not yet been being fully addressed. Uh, the example I give is that We've been working with uh, Dr. Nasser Ahmadi at a major county hospital in Los Angeles, and he's submitting a, a study, a pilot study, of looking at adolescents coming into a major ER with suicidal ideation or thought or plans and screening them. I don't know if any other group has done this, screening them for their exposure to COVID death in addition to all the other screening that they might be doing. And, and identifying a subset where they um, have suffered a death in their family or close relative or friend, and realizing that it has been totally private. They've not shared it with anyone. And then taking the normal suicide prevention programs that have proved successful, Dr. Sarno and others, in ER settings and enhancing them with, um, for example, an inventory of their loss reminders, sharing those with their parent or other caregivers, and for the first time gaining support for that adolescent in their, um, in their mourning and grief, and then following that with telephone calls and support afterwards, but seeing in follow-up that the suicidal ideation, I'm gonna exaggerate, but melts away. Uh, that it's related to that kind of reunion and other feelings 
that are related to the to the loss. And that means that we have a major job in the United States and making sure to keep our attention to those children and adolescents, but families where there's been COVID deaths. It's very easy to lose sight of that over time, but it's it could be a, a major, and this intervention is not particularly intense, thorough, I mean, intense or long. It's right there in the ER with follow-up calls for the ER patients and support, and it leads to referrals. So it's not like some of these youth don't need the kind of treatment that Dr. Um, Lane and Dr. Kapler are speaking about, but you can do a lot of good by just enhancing that support right there immediately. Thank you for that. Yes, certainly COVID, I think, um, and uh, everything that you were just saying feels very relevant internationally. Um, too, as we think about just kind of how this ties in for, for our listeners um, in so many different ways. Dr. Kaplow, I wanted to follow up just briefly on, um, you started to talk a little bit um, about sort of community and community violence. And um, something I also know about your work is that, um, you know, you and others have been working closely um, in the aftermath of uh, recent school shooting um, with the Uvalde Independent School District following the Robb Elementary School shooting um, that took place there. And I was just wondering if you could share a little bit about sort of your experience um, being someone providing uh, support to a community in the aftermath of a tragedy like that and broadly about, I guess, how um, a community handles um, aftermath of events like that. Absolutely. And, you know, I know that my colleagues, Dr. Lane and Dr. Pinus, also both have experience with this, but unfortunately, we have now had the experience of intervening in the aftermath of two different school shootings in Texas. One was the Santa Fe school shooting um, in 2018, and now this one in Uvalde. And what we have learned a lot um, well, we've learned a lot of things about these communities and how to intervene, but we've learned a lot, not just about the communities, but about how children and adolescents respond to those tragedies. And we've really seen firsthand just how different PTSD is from grief. And I know that sounds simplistic, but it has played out in multiple ways in what we've observed, as well as how PTSD and grief interact. So for example, typically, as we watch the post-traumatic stress recede in a community, that's when the grief really starts to, to set in. And this tends to occur both at the community level as well as the individual level. So communities may slowly move past the trauma and the fear of what happened, but the grief remains. And of course, this also depends on the culture of the community. We have um, encountered much stigma associated with seeking mental health care after these tragedies. And interestingly, there is often more stigma associated with seeking help for PTSD, whereas less stigma occurs when it's associated with seeking help for grief. And we've actually seen a similar pattern among youth and young adults in juvenile justice settings where it is much harder for the youth to openly discuss their post-traumatic stress or share their stories about being afraid or fearful but much easier for them to discuss how much they miss their good friend or their father or their sibling who died. Um, we've also learned that not every child or adolescent exposed to a shooting needs mental health care. And in fact, we now know a lot more about which kids are likely to be most at risk following a shooting. 
So some of the most potent risk factors tend to include proximity, proximity to the event. Um, did they witness the event themselves? Were they under life threat? Other risk factors include pre-existing mental health issues that they may have had or pre-existing <clears throat> traumas or losses. And environmental risk factors are also key, including the mental health of their surviving caregiver and exposure to trauma and loss reminders. Um, and finally, one of the most important lessons we've learned is that every community is different. So each has its own needs and strengths, and we really have to listen carefully to what those are, as opposed to just parachuting in with our own preconceived ideas about what is right for that community. And that is something that we're currently doing in Uvalde, really trying to understand how to harness the strengths and supports that they already have while also learning much more about where there are gaps and how we can help to fill them. Interestingly, we're finding that many trauma-informed therapists in the community may not have had the training in how to treat grief in particular. So that's something that we're actively helping them with. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Capo, for explaining that and uh, really for doing such important and needed work. Um, really thank all three of you for Kind of the work you've done in pioneering this field. Um, so I, I think our listeners at this point might be wondering what does come next? Um, what interventions or uh, innovations can researchers and clinicians expect to hear or learn about next? And I invite you all to kind of speak on that. <laughs> well, I think uh... If I can uh, share some of the things that we're doing in my in my research lab, we're really trying to interdigitate um, clinical training in a in a training clinic setting with developing a, a core curriculum that can be distributed on a on a broad scale basis. Um, and so, what we're really trying to do is is to bring together a synergistic um, confluence, a, a flowing together of multidimensional grief theory and to develop and to validate assessment tools for particular types of applications. So that's going, uh, that's an ongoing project. We're building and evaluating interventions, uh, namely really helping us to make uh, more informed decisions about what kind of treatment is best uh, suited for which particular types of, of bereavement and grief profiles. Um, you know, we've got trauma and grief component therapy for adolescents, which has actually uh, got good evidence with respect to working with kids who have trauma histories that are unrelated to bereavement and traumatic bereavement and, and uh, grief reactions, as well as developmental disruption. Multidimensional grief therapy is really focused on bereaved children and adolescents. And so really helping us to decide which particular interventions may be best suited and using assessment tools to guide that, I think, is, uh, is an important part of the work. We're also uh, working, partnering with a variety of different organizations evermore, for example, to do bereavement-related advocacy on Capitol Hill, for example. So a recent achievement there was that bereavement status is now uh, a federal requirement for a good number of federal agencies, including SAMHSA. So they now need to report, for example, on the number of bereaved families or individuals whom they provide services to. And we actually think that's a really important step towards putting bereavement and grief on the national radar. Um, as a, a pressing uh, public health issue and something that really does require um, serious attention. I think one last point I'd like to make right now is that sort of the elephant in the room in our conversation here is that, that you know, uh, grief is different from PTSD and, and depression. I think perhaps even 10, 15 years ago, people might have just simply said grief is basically PTSD plus depression. It really is a very, very distinct entity. 
Um, and then we're also talking about the need for bereavement-informed care, not simply trauma-informed care. It's not a variant of trauma-informed care, et cetera, but bereavement-informed care uh, requires, uh, I think, eventually a national and an international mobilization um, at many different levels of society, but just helping people understand first and foremost what prolonged grief disorder looks like in the United States, for example, the, the DSM-5TR version versus prolonged grief disorder internationally in the ICD-11 version, for example, they don't overlap that closely, is I think a really important part of just simply raising awareness about grief itself and recognizing the fact that uh, bereavement per se is, is, is uh, is something that we should really be care paying uh, careful attention to in our routine risk screening and recognizing that circumstances of the death can meaningfully significantly increase the likelihood of difficult brief reactions that may merit more specialized therapeutic attention. So I get to say on behalf of Dr. Lane and Dr. Kapow that we have a um, an assessment tool, a prolonged grief disorder checklist children and adolescents a lot of time and attention went into making that as scientifically rigorous and uh, helpful as possible so that's available and that we have um, a multi-dimensional grief uh, manual or uh, book that's being published by cambridge university press coming out within the next number of months which again matching as was said the assessment to the the difference here is not doing universal grief counseling, which Dr. Parks, one of the great leaders in the field, has said has really not led to that real increase in outcome for bereaved, for really distressed and impaired adults or children from grief and bereavement, but tailoring it, as both Dr. Lane and Dr. Capo pointed out, that means an assessment that allows you to know how to tailor the interventions um, and how the profile of those of that bereavement may vary by the by event. Even a different school shooting may have different a different profile among the population of children and families, or teachers or school personnel. But the idea is to be able to use assessment to govern a dimensional approach to their bereavement. That's very different than the adult literature and even the adult approaches to um, to prolonged grief disorder, which have embedded in them, for example. Dr. Shear's work addressing some circumstance, but it doesn't really pull that out as a dimension. Um, whereas you'll see in prolonged grief disorder that we were able to include circumstances of stress as one of the lead points for children and adolescents because they'll focus on the concrete details and suffering of, of the deceased as a lead point to their bereavement and grief. Um, and we are able to include that as part of the assessment uh, for children and adolescents. So I think that we're actually, I think this dimensional approach is appropriate for all ages um, and would allow a much more uh, tailored approach uh, to uh, intervention, which I think in the long run is going to be best for children and families. And Thank just to, to briefly add to that, if I could, is that we're, one of the reasons why we find this multidimensional grief uh, a theory approach to be so useful is because our circumstance related distress uh, dimension can accommodate many different types of, of, of traumatic, or I'm sorry, of, of tragic deaths that are deeply disturbing, but actually don't meet criterion A for PTSD. Um, you know, so feeling like, for instance, you may have, have, you know, infected someone who later died of COVID, for instance, or that you just simply didn't do enough 
either in terms of commission or omission in ways that may have contributed to the person's death. These can be very, very distressing for young people or people of any ages, uh, but that's, not That's been true, Chris, for, for, for even deaths where, you know, as, as Julie's pointed out, where there's physical deterioration. Yes. And, and the child focuses on that. That's their indicator of their, of their parents' death. So you better address that. Absolutely. But that's also true for adults too, um, who often deal with things that have gone wrong or even that uh, Dr. Shearer says somebody didn't pay the uh, mortgage payment right before they died. Um, there are circumstantial issues that adults need to address too, but they don't draw them out with the same attention mm -hmm. that the child field has paid attention to them, yeah. but they're there. Nor can they be diagnosed as PTSD or, or we would argue treated with a straightforward PTSD-focused treatment. I agree. Gotcha, thank you both. Uh, Dr. Kaplow, was there something you wanted to add to that? Yes, thank you. No, this is a perfect segue. Um, as Bob mentioned, um, you know, multidimensional grief therapy is something we've been working on for many years now um, that is grounded in multidimensional grief theory. But this is an assessment driven intervention um, that I thought I would just talk about for a minute that is designed to reduce maladaptive grieving and facilitate adaptive grieving in children and adolescents ages seven through 18. So um, with the help of um, Dr. Dr. Lane and Dr. Pinus and Dr. Saltzman, we have now produced a manual that um, to our knowledge is the first evidence-based assessment-driven grief intervention for children that specifically targets the primary bereavement-related challenges that most youth experience after a death. So we're very excited for this to come out. Um, MGT includes specific treatment components that are tailored to address each of the dimensions of grief that we talked about earlier based on the child's assessment profile. So sessions are delivered individually once per week, and each session also incorporates a dyadic caregiver child session or component designed to enhance communication and parental grief facilitation. And this is where we really help to provide coaching to the caregiver about how they can help their child to grieve in adaptive ways. Um, MGT also uses a two-phased approach. So as Chris mentioned earlier, you know, um, not every child is going to need both phases. So the first phase is designed to provide general grief support and focuses primarily on psychoeducation, normalizing grief reactions, emotion regulation, skill building, identifying loss and trauma reminders, and encourages positive reminiscing and memorializing activities. And phase one can really be offered not just by clinicians, but also bereavement centers, faith-based organizations, schools, other settings that are focused on more of that tier one support after a death. The second phase is designed to address more maladaptive grief reactions by guiding the child through their own loss narrative. And a loss narrative is different than a trauma narrative in that the child doesn't just focus on the circumstances of the death itself. But instead, the loss narrative includes several chapters that help to describe the deceased person, what the child misses most about them, helping the child to feel more connected to the person, um, identifying changes in the child's life as a result of the death, and helping them to make meaning of the loss. Phase two also includes sharing the loss narrative with the surviving caregiver. So the two-phase structure of MGT recognizes that not all bereaved children need the same form of support, some may benefit just from phase one and others will require the more intensive phase two. And <clears throat> one more thing that I'll add is that, you know, we're learning 
with the with the pandemic that so many schools and school districts are really struggling to meet the grief and bereavement related needs of their students. And so one of the projects that we have just started is actually training an entire school district. This is the Dallas Independent School District in how to better address the grief grief reactions that they're seeing in their students. So we're actually training all 500 of their school counselors in one of our evidence based interventions. We're actually using both trauma and grief component therapy as well as multidimensional grief therapy to help the school counselors better address those needs. And also we're training the teachers in what to look for. So how do they know whether a child is grieving in a healthy and adaptive way or a more maladaptive way and how to make more appropriate referrals. And interestingly, this was requested of us because of the number of COVID related deaths that that particular district was seeing. So hopefully over time, we can start to really um, empower our communities and our schools to be able to better identify and address the grief related needs of so many kids across the US. Thank you so much, Dr. Kaplow. Um, it sounds like there's some great tools that are available now, and then I'm sure that there'll be some listeners out there who'll be looking forward to the release of your uh, treatment manual. Um, before we close here, I just want to mention again that there are some additional materials that go along with today's topic. Uh, be sure to check out the ISTSS Friday Fast Facts webpage for that infographic and clinician-facing fact sheet. Um, I'd like to thank you all again, Dr. Lane, Dr. Kaplan, Dr. Pinos, for uh, meeting with us here today and sharing your expertise. We really appreciate it. Um, and again, thank you so much to our listeners for listening to Trauma Talks, the official podcast for the International Society of Traumatic Stress Studies.